Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. But without further ado, please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. How's it going, Matthew? Great. How are you doing, Liam? I'm doing, I'm doing good. I think we're both uh, awake, alert, and ready for an excellent conversation about cryptocurrency. Yeah, I'm glad uh, to get started with some conversations about uh, Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency space because it's, it's, to me, one of the most important topics as I think that it will shape a lot of the, the way we move forward into the future. Mm, both, both, uh, both as an investment standpoint and as an infrastructural cultural standpoint, would you say? More the latter, but uh, you know, short term um, uh, in particular, um, there are uh, great investment opportunities. I still think that that Bitcoin is the best technology worth investing in in the world right now. Um, but we're going to hear about some other technologies today. Wonderful. Well, let's use that as our opportunity to welcome Joel Smalley and Christoph Atlas. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, you guys uh, seem to uh, be fairly uh, or extremely educated in this sphere of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Um, I'd love to have you guys introduce yourselves to the audience who may or may not be familiar with what you guys do. Joel, do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. Uh, so first of all, I would just caveat, I'm not uh, big in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. So, of course, we, we have to make the distinction between cryptocurrency and blockchain. So uh, Bitcoin uh, cryptocurrency runs on the Bitcoin blockchain. And those were the two uh, novelties that came in in uh, 2008. Uh, I have spent most of my time focused on blockchain technology. And for a long time, I was actually uh, not... Uh, in favor of cryptocurrencies. Uh, this was because uh, my history has been rooted in capital markets and retail banking. So on the regulated side uh, of finance uh, and prior to COVID, I didn't think there was an issue with central authority. I trusted government, I trusted regulators, I trusted the central bank. Uh, so as a result, I kind of didn't see the real point of decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Um, things have changed uh, and I'm softening up a bit. I'm not anywhere near uh, as uh, enthusiastic about it as Matthew um, and perhaps not as much as Christoph. I don't know, but I'll allow Christoph to, uh, to introduce himself uh, and see where he sits. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a cybersecurity professional uh, working in the cryptocurrency space. I've been uh, in that space for maybe nine years, 10 years. It's been a while. Um, so 
that's been a, a focus of mine for for a good long time. And I'm certainly an advocate of, of cryptocurrency. I'm very excited about the technology. And, uh, you know, in spite of all of the, uh, the drama happening in uh, crypto related capital markets and all that, I'm still very optimistic for what we'll accomplish with crypto. Thanks, guys. Uh, Joel, I just want to say this. Um, I, I, I'm always impressed that somebody, uh, you know, who, who's gone through, um, you know, decades of adulthood uh, or just more than one um, can stop and have a major moment where they reevaluate something, uh, you know, core and central to their philosophy and be open to ideas and not know for sure where they're they're going to land with all that. It's important to to, you know, it's important for all of us to question uh, our beliefs every once in a while. And, and, but of course it takes strength to do it. So um, I, I didn't know that about you, that, uh, that it was, um, you know, only recently that you were thinking through um, some of these levels of how governance should take place. Um, but thanks guys. If I could, um, if I could start with a question and, and I didn't realize how, how different the perspectives might be on this, but I was, I was just going to start with what are the hurdles uh, you know, what are the biggest hurdles for Bitcoin over the next 10 to 20 years? Atlas, I'm going to throw that one to you first. Oh, yeah, great question. Um, I tend to uh, frame a lot of the the backdrop for crypto in terms of the state versus crypto, right? Because that's the kind of cyber cyberpunk, uh, crypto punk kind of background that it's coming from. And so I see a lot of the challenges framed in terms of how governments are going to relate to crypto. Uh, I think there's going to be continued pushes for uh, burdens and regulation that are going to make uh, it difficult to advance the technology and for people to use the technology and to, to enjoy it in the way that it can be enjoyed. And uh, I expect that there will be attacks against the cryptocurrency industry by the state. Um, one of the main ways that we're seeing that right now is a type of state that from a Western perspective, some people might call a rogue state. It's really best exemplified uh, by North Korea, who has been caught fairly red-handed uh, targeting you know, crypto exchanges and stuff like this. And, um, but you know, they're, they're, they're not worried about their, they're not worried about the dollar, right? That's not why they're attacking crypto they're they're just looking to to steal funds to kind of augment their war chest and get around some of the economic sanctions that are uh, preventing them from moving their their regular funds around but i think that will probably advance to um, attacks from western nations and, and stuff like that probably starting out in a fairly clandestine fashion and it may escalate from there um so i think that's one of the the huge challenges i actually have a question um you know personally i question whether or not the level uh, to which the pandemic was ratcheted to um, might have been something like that, uh, which is the centralized powers fearing um, loss of the power of the dollar, beginning to see the end, um, especially after the repo market hiccup, which I personally call a re repo market collapse uh, in September of uh, 2019. Um, Joel, uh, what do you think that the next 10 to 20 years looks like? Well, interestingly, I... I, I don't think government is the problem for crypto, um, not proper crypto. And, and again, as you said, this is probably surprising coming from me, who's recent uh, to the game, uh, the cyberpunk side of it. I mean, crypto done right shouldn't be affected by government. Uh, it's the periphery 
that's affected the exchanges yes the brokers uh the interface with fiat uh, and the conventional world those are the only areas that government can control crypto uh, even if they outlawed it so people weren't allowed to hold crypto or uh, exchange crypto in return for other value it's impossible for them to to police that except in the in the discussion we had just before we came on air around the whole uh, area of anonymity if they can somehow identify people then of course they can go after them but if you solve that problem um then there's no there's no point of attack not not against the individual or against the the network of nodes so i don't think over the next 10 to 20 years that government is the problem for crypto what i think if we narrow it down i would say the threat to bitcoin uh specifically is simply competition um as you know uh, given some of the conversations we've had in the past uh but mainly i would say the threat uh to crypto in general is adoption uh even now after so much turmoil in the last few years people like me coming from the other side uh, and recognizing that there is a genuine need uh for crypto there's still the majority of people either haven't heard of it or still are suspicious of it. So I can't see that crypto in its current state becomes mainstream, becomes adopted by the masses. And, you know, we've all done lots of work on, on COVID. And I think we can draw the analogy there as well. The number of people that are still uh, unaware of the deeper uh, repercussions of, of COVID response are the same people that I think would be reticent to give up their fiat currency and adopt uh, any kind of digital currency. I think they're more likely uh, to adopt uh, a central bank digital currency before they would adopt a decentralized uh, cryptocurrency. Now, that's that's as a lay person, I know a lot of my colleagues are very concerned about digital currency in general. Now, cryptocurrency and digital currency are not equal. They're not the same thing. Um, cryptocurrency, I suppose you, you might correct me, is a form of a digital currency by definition. But when we're talking about central bank digital currencies, which is a very scary term for some versus cryptocurrency, they're not the same thing, right? Could you explain, Joel, the, the 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 distinction? What's what's the difference here? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We already have digital currency. I mean, anything that's not cash. So when you're making a, a bank transfer, that's effectively a digital currency. The difference is uh, that the entity that records the balance and authorizes the transaction, so it says party A has sufficient balance, and I've received authority to transfer some value to party B is a central authority. With a cryptocurrency, there is no central authority. There is just an algorithm that checks that and there's a ledger which is distributed. So lots of nodes can validate that party A has sufficient funds and that party B genuinely authorized the transfer of some of those funds uh, to, to another party. That I would say is, is a lay person's uh, description to understand the difference between a cryptocurrency, if we use that term specifically for decentralized digital currencies, 
versus any other digital currency. So the, the dollars, euros, pounds that we have in our bank accounts right now, are those central bank digital currencies or is that a technology that's yet to be implemented but is on the horizon in theory? Yeah, yeah, so that's different. So when I say, I mean, digital, again, can have lots of different meanings. Digital for me is not analog. It's not paper, right? So a transfer from a bank account to a bank account is a digital transfer. But you wouldn't say that's the same as a digital currency like we have in mind for central bank digital currencies. Digital currencies, the next evolution of digital currencies, have other attributes, like they can be programmable. And this, again, is is potentially part of the problem of central bank digital currencies if you believe the conspiracy theories that generally become fact after a few months uh, about social credit. So a digital currency like the ones we talk about, they can be programmed so you can go into a shop and the shop will automatically reject your funds because you're not allowed to buy cigarettes or alcohol or you're not allowed to buy anything after six o'clock in the evening you know you're not allowed to buy anything outside of a five kilometer radius of your house so this is the next evolution uh and one of the um benefits or or, or advantages of this new uh breed of digital currency it can make transacting more efficient um but in the wrong hands it can also cause some societal damage okay if i could jump in here um i, I want to pick at uh one specific point um but it, it, it's a big one it's, it's whether or not uh bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies um affect the government i i think that it affects government uh massively. In fact, I think that that's primarily what it does. It, it takes away the ability for the government to control and print the money supply. And when I think about the way government functions, I think um, that I think the banks are the currency, are the military, are the power. Um, and I, I'd like to toss this one over to Kristoff. Um, what are your thoughts on the way that you see uh, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies affecting government. You, obviously, you you see this. You, you know, you went immediately towards state versus crypto. Uh, you think that there's a, a conflict of interest there. Um, describe the reason why. Yeah, clearly there's a there's a substantial relationship between finance and government, right? And it's kind of obvious if you think about it. People who want to have control over things. I mean, those are the two big levers of power. Right. And uh, of course, there's going to be a, a marrying between the two of those. And so um, if we look at spy organizations like the NSA, for example, they've been talking about the idea of digital money all the way back to the 80s, maybe earlier than that. And, you know, pretty publicly kind of examining this idea of like, OK, well, the Internet is getting more and more popular here. Surely at some point, people are going to create some kind of digital money here. And if you simply create a corporation and you, you know, create your, your e-corp coin or whatever, well, then the, that's illegal. You know, the, the people in suits will come to your offices and shut you down. And that happened several times. There was like a, an e-gold company at one point. Sometimes it was a polite, you know, shutdown where you ceased operations. Sometimes people went to, to prison for it. Um, but, you know, an organization like the NSA has had expertise in economics and cryptography uh, going way back, right? So they understood that eventually someone was going to put together some kind of decentralized, headless way of, of uh, doing this stuff. And they had been thinking about uh, 
that from an adversarial perspective. You know, the NSA has tons of employees, tons of offices, tons of resources at their disposal that are reliant on uh, the current kind of dollar regime. And so when they think about anything that could challenge that dollar regime, they see that from a risk perspective and they've been preparing to deal with those kind of risks for a long time. And uh, they probably put some, you know, not small amount of resources into thinking about how they would go after a technology like Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies if it became, uh, you know, a, a high risk for them. All right. Um, let's talk for a moment about um, networks, because, you know, a lot of what money is, is about is value moving around networks. Uh, if I buy a bicycle from you at a garage sale, I pass $50 to your node on the network and, and I get a bicycle for that. Um, now, Joel, you are um, involved in a project uh, creating networks within digital uh, tokens. I am I correct? Yeah, I mean, that's my business now. So uh, as I said, um, I have spent the last few years working on blockchain technology as opposed to cryptocurrencies and the blockchain technology itself. I would say the distinction between that and other ledger tech uh, technologies like databases, for example, is that it facilitates networks. And this has been a strap line uh, of, uh, of my business um, almost since the beginning to try and just articulate the difference between blockchain and um, other database technologies. Uh, what it allows you to do is for, if we take this three main elements of a business network, you've got your supplier, you've got your business, and you've got your customer. And it allows uh, you to bring the entire your entire network of suppliers and customers into one uh, um, infrastructure which allows you to operate more efficiently, but it also provides a better user experience for your customers and indeed for your suppliers. And it does this because it uh, removes the need for reconciliation uh, in transactions. So the difference is uh, in a conventional uh, setup, each, um, each of those uh, links in the chain has their own system of record. And in order for both systems to be updated via a transaction, you have to reconcile that transaction and then hope after a series of you know, perpetual reconciliation, uh, the ledgers uh, agree with each other. If you then extend that to your customers, everybody has their own personal ledger. So when you go and buy something from the shop, you get a list of transactions and you update your larder or your wardrobe. Uh, and these all uh, reconcile back to the business as well, because you may want to uh, come back and return an item or, or something like that. So, so you uh, a lot of the value as automated ledger technology. Yes, indeed. In fact, I thought all of the value was uh, in that business process efficiency and enhanced uh, user experience. Remember, you know, three years ago, I didn't think. Uh, the reason why we were all exposed to blockchain via decentralized cryptocurrency was that valuable, right? North Korea, you've mentioned it at the time. Um, Zimbabwe, I think, was having some problems. And I'm like, outside of the obvious political uh, situations, I couldn't see the need or the reason, the raison d'etre for cryptocurrency, right? 
now I've changed, but we still have that underlying value in the blockchain technology itself. I, I think it's it's really important to keep the two separate, in fact. Right? They are distinct propositions. They both have their, uh, their uh, value. Uh, and if we can recognize that they are different but complementary, then I think it's going to help the understanding. I'd like to circle back briefly to something Joel brought up before, which was adoption, right? And um, that's a, it's a really good point. It's like, uh, why do people like those on the call right now, why do we need cryptocurrency? Maybe we don't. Maybe our local government currencies are stable enough, good enough. There's some questions coming up about that lately, you know, with, with uh, uh, inflation, with a dollar and, and all that, but we're still in decent shape. It's worthwhile keeping in mind, though, that at any given point in time, mm -hmm. there are several government currencies around the world that, that are in a period of hyperinflation. I think there's at least four of them right now. I couldn't rattle them off the top of my head, but there's several of them. So people in those countries really are looking for an alternative. They can kind of get into the dollar. There's kind of these, you know, corner of the street cash exchanges that take place. But uh, a lot of them are finding that they prefer cryptocurrency uh, for a variety of reasons. Their, their local governments are certainly trying to clamp down on the use of dollars and stuff like that. So this can be one way to kind of circumvent that. And so clearly some of the Western investors who maybe they're not using cryptocurrency so much in their personal lives because they don't need it as much, they're speculating on the value that it provides to people in these other places, right? And they're maybe also making a bet that, okay, right now there's these four countries that are, have hyperinflation. I think it's going to be six next year and then eight the next year, right? And so there's a, there's a degree of speculation that's, that's taking place on, on that. And uh, of course, we don't know uh, what the future is going to hold in that regard, but you can at least make a reasonable investment thesis that there will be continued uh, inflation around the world and, and, and problems related to um, the control of money by governments and censorship of finance based on that control. If I can ask, because right now the value, there's 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 the underlying value of what the technology allows. But in the meantime, perhaps this is a barrier to entry where um, where blockchain, perhaps as represented to the average person through cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. And I apologize, Joel, if I keep conflating things that that you're saying shouldn't be conflated. If so, don't let me get away with it. But um the value of a, of a Bitcoin is pegged right now uh, to the U.S. dollar, at least in terms of how it's mostly viewed by average people like myself. You know, I go in and I pull up um, uh, I pull up the uh, price of Bitcoin today. And this is the most interesting thing to me about it. And so I wonder, to, first, this does seem to be the, the 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 gateway, you know, the buying the first bit of Bitcoin to diversify uh, if you're in the Western world and, and aren't necessarily in hyperinflation yet you want to dip your toes into the market of this thing um and then from there uh like i said gateway you then become more interested in well hang on a second there's all these other coins and do they and then you have a whole new world to learn but at what point will this no longer be relevant at all at what point does this get to take on its own life in terms of mass adoption you know the removal of its consideration as being related to the dollar in some important way Okay, uh, this is a place I'd like to jump in. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and answer that question, but I'm going to talk a little bit about inflation and and a, a possible direction we may go from here. Uh, if Bitcoin no longer trades versus the dollar, it will mean that one or the other of them has become irrelevant. 
Um, essentially, that's why a currency stops trading. We call it tiers law, where the velocity of, of trying to get rid of all of one currency because it's becoming so worthless so quickly, um, you know, it just sort of spikes to infinity, meaning nobody ever wants to take it anymore. Um, I, I see, you know, we, we talked about this uh, uh, hyperinflation that's going on around the world. What I think is that the entire world is going through a period of inflation because um, those who control the dollar, uh, that entire ecosystem uh, is too addicted to spending. Um, uh, they spend uh, more than they can tax for. And so what they have to do is keep printing more currency in order to have what they want for their purposes of consumption. And right now we we have uh, a certain amount of inflation in the US. I think I saw a number like 9.1% the other day, uh, which is much higher than usual. That That's a difficult number to keep up with if what you need is improvements to technology to keep the economy growing. Um, but what I think is around the world, uh, the, the inflation will happen faster with these weaker currencies. And then I think that we may cycle back into a period of deflation as people with other currencies um, demand dollars and buy up dollars. And like Christoph said, some of those, you know, some places people may be buying cryptocurrencies, but I don't think that that's uh, happening in mass yet. I think people are going to reach for the dollar first um, because it's it's the more known quantity. I think we'll have a period of deflation, but then once that cycle is over, where a lot of those currencies have just spilled their value into the dollar, I think we'll go back to inflation. And that's that'll be the era when we find out whether or not you know the the world flees the entire fiat um, uh, system, and yeah, this is why um, this is why I, I do think that there is a conflict between uh, cryptocurrency and, and and governance, and I think that um, I think that the pressures have already begun. I think that um, there's no way in the world that uh, the central bankers don't know what they are up against in terms of that competition. And, you know, people talk a lot about Bitcoin as being uh, protection against inflation. And that's because of this, this, uh, this, you know, one feature, which is uh, defined scarcity or, you know, capped um, monetary supply. So, Joel, when you when you hear that, um, how does that have friction with your views? Like, um, you know, the, the capped monetary supply, uh, if you have these, you know, two competing currencies, um, I, you know, I, I guess, how do they not compete? Yeah, I, I, I don't think they ever go away. Um, everything is always priced relative to something else. So you can never just have something which is a unit all of itself. Uh, you can't know its value unless you express it versus something else, even if it's against the thing uh, that you're buying. You know, a loaf of bread, a bicycle. A, we used to have this thing, the, uh, the Big Mac index or the Mars bar index um, as, a, as a measure of relative value across different countries. So it's always going to be expressed against something. Uh, if the question is, if it's not expressed against the dollar, then as Matthew correctly says, it means if Bitcoin is still around, it means the dollar isn't. I do think eventually fiat currency will disappear. I think it's had its day, but it won't be in our lifetime, probably not in our children or maybe even our grandchildren. Uh, we've already discussed the resistance to this is too strong. The people that control the fiat money aren't going to let aren't going to let that happen. Uh, they will legislate and um, incriminate uh, against all of those threats uh, to it. Uh, but what will happen is people will store value and exchange value outside of the fiat money system. I don't believe it will be Bitcoin. 
Um, another reason why I don't believe it will be Bitcoin is because Bitcoin is already too big uh, and it is potentially already centralized. You know, it runs on a centralized uh, um, backbone, the, uh, the World Wide Web. Um, and I think there is a concentration in mining pools uh, that is only controlled by um, sort of gamification incentives not to misbehave. So I think uh, in the long term, 10 to 20 years, we've been talking horizons. Uh, I don't think there will be much difference to what we have now. Uh, but in a much longer horizon, I don't think Bitcoin or the US dollar uh, will survive. I think we'll have uh, a, a multitude of other tokens of value and stores of value. Uh, and we will use the blockchain technology to allow those tokens to have liquidity where 50 or 100 years ago, we couldn't have maintained them because there wasn't the possibility to record balances of these tokens uh, efficiently, transparently uh, and reliably uh, that they could exist and, and be useful. Christoph, so Joel has just painted a, a hundred year type of picture. He, he didn't use a hundred years, but it, it, it sounds a bit like that. Um, um, and, and he sees uh, Bitcoin sort of disappearing into the night, whereas um, uh, many currencies may arise. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, so I think we, we really don't know anyone who is pretending to, to know what the next hundred looks, years looks like in that regard. Um, is, you know, I think, uh, exaggerating their knowledge. Um, there's a couple effects at play here. One of them is just a general observation about technologies, which is typically technologies over time, they get replaced. I mean, we've had some internet-based technologies that have been around for a very long time. HTTP, you know, the IP stack, the whole kind of networking stack that's mostly stayed intact over time. Uh, but in general, technologies get replaced by newer and better ones. And something that we observed about Bitcoin is that the investors, the people who are able to affect change at the protocol level in Bitcoin are uh, very conservative about changes that they want to make. So that gives ample opportunity for other technologies to come along and you know innovate and, and do things better than, than Bitcoin is doing. And so that's definitely um, uh, a bit of a, a uh, disadvantage from Bitcoin's perspective. On the other hand, what we're figuring out now is that currencies have a very powerful network effect, uh, much more powerful than we're seeing with other technologies. And it's because um, finance is so uh, integral to our lives and the, the switching cost of, of switching between different currencies and so forth and coordinating economic activity is so large that people tend to stick to a small number of currencies and stick to them for a good long time. And um, it really seems like a lot of the, you know, why haven't we already uh, come to a single world currency? Well, a lot of that seems to be about governments imposing rules on their tax populace, populations that they get to have their own currency, right? That's their sort of a, an agreement among thieves, so to speak, on how that, that works. And then, um, you know, and then, Governments are so bad at maintaining their currencies over time that they tend to fail every, you know, 250 years roughly or something like that, right? All the way going back to, to Roman times. And there's a lot of people that are concerned that the dollar is, you know, coming up on that on that period at the end of its period. 
So perhaps without the meddling of governments, we, were probably, we may have settled on a single world currency by now. Um, and maybe Bitcoin will be that. It certainly is the, it had the first mover advantage. And it seems like this network effect is really, really powerful and motivating. And, and it's, it's allowing Bitcoin to maintain its lead in the cryptocurrency space, even though there, it's so easy for new coins to come along and present new innovations. And there are you know, meaningful places that they are innovating. Privacy is one that uh, people brought up that is near and dear to my heart. There's a number of privacy coins now that are much more private to transact with than Bitcoin is. And yet that has not been enough for them to, to steal the show from Bitcoin so far. Okay. Um, here's a, here's a thought that I sometimes have. I sometimes wonder how many currencies we really have. Um, you know, there are, I, you know, I don't know how many, um, you know, foreign currencies, uh, I, I assume in the ballpark of 150 or, or something like that. And I, I sometimes wonder, uh, how many of those are really independent as in how many of them are not dependent on the dollar, uh, the dollar in particular, I, I, you know, my personal opinion is that, um, the differences between governance are, they're there, they're real. Okay. You have their, your own currency, but I think of it as like a, um, you know, dollar uh, subscript national flag, right? Where where those uh, differences are minimal. And and part of what I would point to in saying that is, is look at quantitative easing. When the US went into quantitative easing, essentially everyone in the world went into quantitative easing because the dollar is the reserve currency because it would affect their banking networks so much, right? Um, so when, when the, if, you know, if we inflate our dollar supply, we're going to receive huge taxation from the world, uh, in the form of the, the Cantillon effect, unless they create their own Cantillon effects also, in which case the Cantillon effects are merely local and all the bankers then get, get a little bit wealthier at, at the expense of the people furthest from the banking networks. So either of you want to jump in and, uh, entangle with, with that logic. I don't know if you've discussed it previously, but for the, the sake of the audience, do you want to just briefly explain the Cantillon effect? Sure. I was going to mm -hmm. ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and sorry, uh, I, I, I would normally have done that. I wrote an article on it last night. So I was like, oh, yeah, I've already explained this to the audience. No, um, the, the Cantillon effect is where, um, you know, we have this, this graph, you know, all these points all over the world where each one could represent uh, a wallet or um, a bank account or something like that. And different humans have agency over those nodes. And each one of those nodes has some, you know, quantity of dollars on it, let's say. Let's just talk one currency to make it simple. Uh, has some quantity of dollars on it. And uh, and those dollars move around the graph when they're spent. Um, when when the Cantillon effect occurs, it, it creates a bunch of new dollars, but puts them on one spot. Right. If you doubled the number of dollars on on every node, then it would just cut in half the value of the currency. Everything, all prices would double in proportion with with uh, the number of dollars. Essentially, there there are little effects in there to consider. Um, but if you took all the dollars and dropped them on one spot, then um, you know suddenly um, you know the, whoever has all those dollars gets to spend them first and gets to buy up a whole bunch of stuff. Right. Um, that comes at somebody else's expense. And I think the way it happens is it ripples signals through the market and the market gradually adjusts prices in order to weave together the new reality of, of uh, supply and demand, right? And whoever is furthest from that, that epicenter 
um, as, as it ripples outward, it, those are the people who are paying the cost uh, of the shadow tax that is accrued by the person who printed the money. So um, I, I would say that given given that uh, when the when the dollar when the U.S. central bankers print a whole bunch of dollars and everybody else in the world follows, that's an indication that there is uh, so much interconnectedness that it's almost like they're just being one currency, you know, one law, you know, they're, they're sort of semi-independence among nations, but really and truly there's kind of a military order. Um, and maybe there are only two or three independent currencies in the world or maybe just one. And aren't you just describing the the fact that that the U.S. dollar is the the world's reserve currency? Uh, it, it, I'm naive to this, but that sounds like what you're describing there. That, that may even be implicitly the definition, which is yeah. if we were to print a whole bunch of money, everybody else would have to also. <laughs> right. Not, not exactly, but. Well, there's, there's a couple of components to it there that are intertwined. One is the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of international trade is using the dollar as a unit of, of exchange and account. Um, and, and so that creates a demand for dollars, certainly. Um, but also there's the kind of uh, the military regime that the, the U.S. has imposed on the world for the last, uh, you know, several decades, at least this kind of unipolar uni, uni model. And um, that has some ramifications as well. Um, if you were, you know, go back a little short period of time. Uh, Switzerland, it used to be really important to them, part of their their economy, that they had private banking, right? The, the Swiss bank, it was supposed to be this uh, impenetrable, completely private sort of way that, that people could open accounts and do, do commerce. And that's not at all the case for Swiss banking these days. And in large part, that's been kind of rammed down their throats by the, uh, by America and, and related nations. And backing that is you know, the implicit uh, power of military force. Not that the American government is directly threatening to invade Switzerland if they don't go along, but there's a whole kind of uh, chain of command. There's a whole uh, apparatus around that, that that allows that influence to be imposed. Um, and so- now, I'm not yeah, sure that there are... weren't threats. I mean, about 10 years <laughs> ago, uh, I mean, you know, uh, the Obama administration had a fundraiser outside of the banks in Switzerland as Americans were flying there to get their money out. Um, but, uh, you know, the list of names were revealed. Is that right? Uh, I can't remember how many, but it was like tens of thousands. of. But um, but I, I, you know, I don't know what it was, but I, I know that there must have been very significant leverage applied for the Swiss to give that value up um, of that anonymity in their banking system. I think this is all part of the same problem we're facing at the moment in regard to globalization. The idea of having a reserve currency is analogous to uh, a one world governance system uh, like the global elites uh, want to impose. It gives them greater control. And as you've uh, articulated, Matthew, through the Cantillon effect, uh, it actually allows them to accrue uh, more wealth simply by printing uh, money uh, and inflating um, uh, their way to, to greater wealth to the detriment of other people. I think all of this uh, will contribute um, to the demise of the dollar and the rise of an alternative uh, alternative methods of stores of value and exchange of value. Um, so 
th that that's um, that's my opinion on it. Um, and as I said, I don't think it's going to take. Uh, it's going to be within our um, generations. I think it will be longer than that. Not uh, saying, Christoph, that I can predict the future in a hundred years. I'm actually saying the opposite. That uh, I I I think um, this will take so long that uh, we'll all be a long time dead, uh, and perhaps I'll be completely wrong, and something else will will happen. But I'm saying if this were to happen, it will take a long time. You, you see saying... pressures moving in one direction, but you also see pressures to remain where we are. Well, there's the the pressure, the existing pressure, of course, from the incumbents. Right? They don't want to let this go. Let this go. The people that control the dollar, the reserve currency, the elites that enrich themselves off it, they're not going to let this go, right? So they're going to fight all of the threats. But I think the threat they can't fight is it's like terrorism. When you've got lots of different cells all over the world, it's a much more difficult fight to win if you're some great big military machine with big weapons if you don't know where to point them. Or if you do know where to point them, there's a lot of collateral damage. So I think this is probably the, 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 the way things could go is by having so many stores of value and exchanges of value, uh, many of which are operating under the radar, that the people that control the money now couldn't possibly, it would be like playing whack-a-mole, but there will just be way too many moles. And eventually, more and more people will start using the moles, less and less people will rely on fiat currency, which means implicitly they will rely less on the US dollar as the reserve currency. And then there's, it doesn't matter what the controllers of that money do. If nobody's using it anymore, like you said, uh, I can't remember the, uh, the term, but when a currency is no longer required, it just zips up to infinity. That's that's what will happen with fiat currencies. What could happen with fiat currencies in general when people realize they don't need them anymore and in not needing them, what they have as an alternative gives them significant advantages in terms of privacy, anonymity, uh, not being taxed as theft, uh, not that I'm advocating uh, anything that's illegal, but these are all things that uh, should appeal to the human condition, I think. Yeah, there is this sort of notion that um, that we should be sort of um, paying for what's done, uh, particularly in our community. I think it's it's easiest to swallow the closer you are to the source of the spending. Um, but uh, th there's this you know conflicting feeling over taxation, which is whether or not um, it's accountable to your community. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna steer the ship to another topic that I think is is approximately as important as the Cantillon, Cantillon effect. And, and by the way, this is an interesting one. I've had people ask me, do you say Cantillon or Cantillon? Anybody have an opinion? But he's French, so it should be Cantillon, I, I guess. I, I say Cantillon, but he's not French. He's I thought Irish. He, was. he was Irish. He went to France and ah. joined the French economic establishment. But uh, it's just a, it's a weird little piece of history uh, that I think I think it, it perfectly allows both pronunciations. Um, <laughs> you just got to give it attitude. <laughs> so I'm going to throw in a, a, another um, economic effect that relates to currencies, competing currencies, which is Gresham's law. 
And Gresham's law is this is where I had sort of a moment where I realized that Bitcoin or, or I believed that Bitcoin was different than I thought it was when I first heard about it. Um, when I when I sat and thought, OK, um, you have this competition between Bitcoin and the dollar. Uh, I thought about all possible currencies and I thought, you know, if you have more than one option, you know, what you do is you hoard the better option. You want to hold on to the better option longer term. Uh, it's a better longer term investment um, than the opposite. And, and that would, you know, and this is this is where uh, bad money drives out good. That means that you're spending the lesser money, the bad money. Um, there's always this competition going on anytime you have multiple currencies. And um, and I think that that eventually uh, there's a you're voted off the island effect where you have tears law, which is that the worst currency is the one that everybody you know wants to push away like a hot potato. And that's sort of a competition like there can be only one. Right. I think that Gresham's law is a force that gradually sifts and sorts and pushes toward there can be only one, though, though there may be sort of a friction over time. It can't happen instantly. Right. Um, but given that competition, um, you know, uh, is, it, so it sounds like um, we have uh, various opinions over fiats eventually fading away. Uh, is there is there a way for a government like the U.S. or China to invent a different kind of digital currency that can compete with that automatic scarcity? Would they be willing to give up the shadow taxation? Can they give it up? And you know what could they do about it? Yeah, we, we, we're focused on the fact that there is only one type of money, fiat money. But if you look at the history of money, uh, there has been lots of different types of money. Most recently, uh, gold-backed uh, money. Uh, and we've had different types of uh, commodity-backed money um, in the money uh, in the past as well. So like physical commodity money, coins used to be made out of copper and silver uh, and gold. Um, and then we had representative money, which was uh, the money represented uh, the, the precious metal, which was held in a vault. And then 1971, uh, we lost the gold standard and we just had basic fiat money. We trust this, uh, which I think is where uh, the, the, the problem started. So governments could very easily revert to some other form of, of uh, predecessor money or indeed adopt some new kind of money that hasn't formed uh, part of the history of money yet. Absolutely. Uh, whether that is some kind of fixed supply um, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or something else. Absolutely. Why not? Like we said, um, the future technology evolves quite quickly uh, and replaces old. So we could be having a different conversation in five or 10 years time. Uh, and uh, looking at central bank digital currencies in a different light. A question, how exactly is Bitcoin limited? Because, I, I, and I, I kind of know the answer, but I don't think it's necessarily widely understood how that is the case. Could you please explain that to me? I'm going to toss that one to Christoph. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll give you the short answer rather than the, uh, you know, multi-hour uh <laughs> Byzantine general explanation of, of how the whole thing works. But you know, the, the, the bottom line is that in the software that represents running a Bitcoin node, programmed in is a total amount of Bitcoin that will ever exist. It's roughly 21 million. So you'll see that number pop up a lot. 
among people talking about Bitcoin. And um, there's a certain degree of inflation that takes place up until, uh, well, for, for a definite amount of time. Um, so right, each time a block is mined right now, which happens roughly every 10 minutes on average, um, some miners get paid out uh, Bitcoin for mining that block. And then on top of that, they're getting paid some transaction fees by the, the users of the network as well. And uh, that amount decreases by 50% every few years. And it's going to keep going down and down and down until eventually, uh, based on this pre-programmed formula for figuring out how much Bitcoin uh, is being produced, that just goes down to zero. We have 21 million Bitcoin. Some of that is actually inaccessible because people lost their keys and stuff like that, as Matthew talked in his blog post about that recently. Um, so, but but the the pre-programmed value is 21 million. Theoretically, that could that value could be changed, but so far the amount of social uh, pressure against even you know countenancing the idea is uh, is is severe. And you know it's a it's a bit like a, a stocks in that the people who hold uh, stocks in the current you know uh, security. Uh, they have some incentive not to allow more stocks to be printed out for, for that, that company or whatever, because they don't want to be devalued. And it's a, a, kind of a similar thing for Bitcoin holders that they're going to be very resistant to any making any software changes that devalue their Bitcoin and, and uh, you know, change that formula. Okay, I, I'm going to try to throw a monkey wrench into that. Um, so, okay, we, we have a program. It's an algorithm. Uh, and, and it says no more than 21 million um, is the sum of all the Bitcoin monetary supply. But you worked on Bitcoin code, is that correct? I didn't work directly on the Bitcoin core uh, software. You know, okay, I infrastructure the, the the economy surrounding that. Okay, I, I misunderstood. Um, then, but but let's say that you were. Let's say that you were a, a Bitcoin core coder, and and you thought, well, I'm just going to create a million Bitcoin and send it to the address of Professor Poopy Pants. Who may or may not be me, you know what 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 keeps you from being able to do that? Yeah, so you could, as a, someone who's it's open source software, so anyone in the world can propose changes to the Bitcoin software. The process that Bitcoin Core has adopted for making changes is pretty rigorous. And keep in mind, and so what we're talking about really is underhanded code. Now, in general, there's it's pretty. There's a lot of opportunities when you're programming to write underhanded code to to have the code do things that are not obvious to, to human readers of the code, right? But keep in mind, you know, the stuff that has to do with this 21 billion figure, it's isolated to a pretty specific section of the code base. And um, and so changes to this code base are heavily scrutinized. There's many, many people around the world at any given point that are reviewing those changes that goes through a very formal uh, approval process. Um, one of the people who was involved in that approval, uh, approval process for a number of years, Peter Willey, he just recently retired. So he's going to hand the reins on, uh, of that over to some other folks. And he's, he's, he was part of a team of people. There wasn't just one person behind it. So um, it, it would be very difficult to make a change to, to that value. There's other stuff that you could try to sneak in there. And I'm sure people have tried. Um, to my knowledge, that's never been done successfully despite all the, you know, the opportunities that you would, you would gain in, in doing so. So it's been a, it's, it appears to be a robust process so far. I, can I jump in there? I mean, the, the, the headline of this is centralization versus decentralization. And 
we use Bitcoin as the archetype decentralized cryptocurrency, but you're talking there about a, a team, a core team. Um, well, that doesn't sound very decentralized to me. If there is a, a, a presumably a, a, a small group of people who kind of arbit, arbiter the potential changes to, to the software, is that really the case? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is sort of true, but there's a pretty complex social dynamic here, uh, and you know, this is something that people often key in when they're first kind of figuring out Bitcoin. It's kind of like, okay, well, if someone writes the software. Can't we just pressure the people who write the software to make some changes? And indeed, most of the people that, to, to my knowledge, that work on Bitcoin core software are publicly known. So, you know, someone with enough resources can go find where they live and, you know, show up at their house, make some demands, that kind of stuff. But, uh, but still, the, the programmer uh, is a fungible unit to to a degree possible. Is, is that some way to put it? Um, I mean, not that they don't have their individual easy, talents. It's easy to skills. overstate the fungibility of these programmers. We're about to tank the software so market, guys. <laughs> the, the software is so complicated these days that it, it actually, you know, most programmers couldn't do this kind of work uh, without, you know, kind of spending years getting up to speed, uh, getting involved with the project. But um, yeah, so I mean, that kind of compulsion is possible. But again, either it's going to be overt uh, pressure. Let, let's say uh, there's a guy, Bob, right? That that's a Bitcoin maintainer and his local government shows up or his local mafia, whoever it is, right? And we want to change the total number of Bitcoin. They, they force and type it in and commit it to, to GitHub. Well, either it's going to be an overt change, in which case people are going to say, well, Bob, thanks for uh, you know your work up to date, but we can no longer trust what you're doing. So you're off the team. Uh, we're not accepting this change up the stream. Um, you know, all of Bob's teammates, they live in a different countries. They're, you know, they're not accessible to the same group of people. So they're not going to push that through, or it's a covert change, and you face the same problems that I just mentioned. That it's it's very difficult to make uh, covert changes that are going to have effects on critical parts of the the software. What what about the biggest threat? You said the biggest threat to Bitcoin was government. So surely the government, if they can identify, and you say that they probably could identify the core team, what's to stop the government going in and say, right, you guys, wipe the program. Or change the program such that everybody's wallet is locked or that all the tokens automatically go to the fed can that happen yeah so the government certainly could locate all the people currently contributing to the bitcoin core software and, and do that but th what they could not do is they couldn't force everyone running the software around the world to update to this new version that makes that change uh, chances are very low that they could actually get that pulled through and um uh if, if it were possible to do that, you could make a pretty good case that this already would have been done. It hasn't. So um, I don't I don't think that's the main weakness that people are concerned uh, with regards to these changes. Now, there's another kind of more subtle, uh, more uh, insidious version of this, where instead of these kind of overt pressure, uh, and, and, and probably uh, agencies like the NSA have done this before with other software projects, where either agents of the, their organization or, or they're, they're influencing people that are uh, part of that, that, that software ecosystem, they're trying to push the conversation of development in a certain direction. And so using psychological warfare operations, they're undermining the um, arguments of people who are, are suggesting good changes or are not making certain changes to the software for the good of the software. That's a multi-year process and it's all kind of spy stuff and very difficult to detect. 
We don't know if anything like that has happened in, in Bitcoin. There's certainly been plenty of accusations by hardcore Bitcoin people back and forth about that and the changes that have been proposed. Um, that's the more likely uh, kind of situation where they're, they're trying to um, kind of deliberately hogtie the software over the long run, but still very difficult to pull off. And uh, it's you, you, you would it would be very difficult to do that for fundamental aspects of the currency, like the 21 million limit. Has anybody actually been kicked out of the club, so to speak? Uh, there have been people who had their access to the Bitcoin core uh, repo revoked over time. Um, not over as anything uh, serious as accusations of, of spycraft or anything like that. But yeah, that, that has changed hands over times and people have been kind of pushed out. People have been socially ostracized. Um, you know, years ago, there was a big debate over the block size limit, and some developers were absolutely adamant that uh, this was a, a technical aspect of the currency that should be changed. Some people absolutely didn't want to change it, and ultimately, the people who didn't want to change it won out. And the most of the people who did want to change it moved off to do other things. They forked off to Bitcoin uh, Cash or moved on to other cryptocurrencies or just got out of cryptocurrency altogether. Uh, Mike Hearn was one of these kind of famous ex-Google employees that was did a lot of um, you know good work in Bitcoin but was was pushed out over that debate um, and, and, and got out of crypto entirely so yeah, I, I, that's love, I, I love happened. the language years ago that was uh, for, for the audience that's uh, under seven years ago but huh. but it feels but it feels like two eras ago at this point in time oh it's ancient history at this point yeah <laughs> So, so what is this what is this creation myth though because I keep we're talking about developers who are in in you know after the beginning but the, the, what's his name Satoshi is this the the original supposed developer could 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 one of you explain the mythos if there is one behind uh Satoshi and the creation of Bitcoin in general before we you know before all these other people got involved Do you want to tackle that one Joel I'm happy to speak to it No no you speak to it it's, it's okay. your domain So yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the 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 nominal explanation was that there was a guy or what person that, that took on the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto who published the original white paper and then shortly after that published uh, a piece of software written in, uh, I believe it was C or C++. And um, uh, clearly it was a large enough code base that he was working on it before uh, the, the publication of the white paper because... He didn't just start it after the white paper was published and um, worked on it for a while, was posting in various, you know, message forums about it and talking with uh, early uh, kind of cypherpunk uh, folks. And then after a while, he bowed out of the project. He said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. This is this is at the point where I needed to be. I'm not further further contributing or getting involved in this project. And um, now there's been a tremendous amount of speculation uh, from from enthusiasts about Bitcoin, journalists, and so forth, so forth about who this Satoshi Nakamoto person is. Um, and, and a number of investigations that have pointed to particular figures, most of this has been proved pretty conclusively not correct. Uh, you know, sort of infamously, there was some random Japanese guy who uh, clearly did not have the right background, but that's the, like Newsbeaker, one of these publications put his face all over the place. And so you'll see kind of this, this disgruntled Japanese guy every once in a while when you search for Satoshi Nakamoto. That was his actual name. Um, even though it was clearly a pseudonym. So, um, uh, so, you know, my personal beef is that it probably was a team of people 
And um, there actually is a person who claims to be Satoshi Nakamoto right now. Um, I hesitate to even bring up his name because he's sort of an infamous troll in the, the cryptocurrency scene and has uh, 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 wrapped up a lot of people in, in frivolous lawsuits and stuff like that. But there, there is a guy who claims to be Satoshi Nakamoto, and he's, he's sticking to this, this story. Um, and uh, it, it is possible that he was part of the team uh, that, that represents Satoshi Nakamoto. I think it's a team probably because the, the people, the person or people who put this stuff together had mastery of so many different domains um, that it's, it's really hard to believe that any one person uh, was able to accomplish all this stuff. Really uh, amazing level of programming uh, acumen. Uh, there's a famous security researcher, uh, Dan Kaminsky, who uh, since passed, but he did a, a kind of a code review, security code review of, of the Bitcoin uh, core software long ago. And he said, wow, you know, this is actually pretty solid. Uh, I wasn't able to find any major vulnerabilities, despite this being written in, in, in a programming language that lends itself to this kind of, these kind of vulnerabilities. This person really knows what they're doing. And so, you know, solid programmer, you know, great understanding of security and, and all that kind of stuff, but also mastery of, of economic concepts, good, you know, solid writer and communicator and, and all this kind of stuff. And the, the, the game theoretical aspect of how Bitcoin, the, the nitty gritty of how Bitcoin mining works is really remarkable. Clearly, it was an advancement on some other uh, technologies that, that had come before it. And he cited those in his white paper, but it was such a tremendous uh, combination of those technologies and advancement all in one to the point where, I mean, it's incredible to think that this is the first cryptocurrency and it's still the leading cryptocurrency in terms of market cap and attention. That's an incredible accomplishment. And um, uh, so that's that's why I think I, I find it implausible that it was a single individual. I think it was a team of people. And, you know, there's also people have a financial reason to, to figure out who Satoshi is because he's got like, I don't know, upward towards a billion coins or, or something like that. So, uh, a, a, billion, a million coins. Um, yeah, some some astronomical number. You know, it'd be a, a billionaire many times over, right? I, um, I've but... grown toward this. Um, it was probably a small team of people opinion also, but that it was one person always doing the communication. Um, the the voice seems to be, you know, similar in a way that that would be difficult to fake. Um, and, and that's something that could be worked out in a team. Um, but what, what are the odds that it's a government team? It's possible, but it's hard for me to understand why any government would want to put that out there. I mean, that, that idea has been pitched before, for sure. But um, I mean, the, the easiest thing for governments to do is to print their own government currency and to, to spend that money. And, and, and to be the ones and make, the, make themselves and their friends, the ones that get that money first, as you, as you mentioned uh, earlier with, with regards to inflation. So this would be possibly the most, you know, the best example of shooting yourself in the foot in all of history if some government team put this together and released it. So I'm sort of skeptical about it from a, from a motivation perspective. But it also means they control their threat. So if they anticipate somebody else might do this, if they go in there and do it first, get that first mover advantage. They've now got control of their biggest threat. Uh, have maybe countermeasures planned out. Yeah, and maybe that's why they haven't moved on it yet. They don't and need to maybe yet. So. That's it's an possible. interesting thought. I mean, they, they did, after all analysis is said and done, the weaknesses of Bitcoin are not many-fold. I mean, there, there are some weaknesses there. There's things that can be improved on, but they're, they're kind of subtle in a lot of ways. And of course, someone can always just fork the software and... and 
you know, people have, right? So if Bitcoin fails, clearly that's going to have a tremendous effect on cryptocurrency. It's going to set it back five, 10 years, maybe more, right? There'll be a loss of confidence in cryptocurrency after that for some time. Mm -hmm. But pe people will circle back to the idea eventually. And then they'll be using Bitcoin 2.0 or Ethereum or whatever it is to replace it. So again, I, I find it, uh, it doesn't make sense to me to do this. So it would be like, um, you know, the Manhattan Project rather than... Um, uh, developing nuclear bombs, which they've given to the government, they decided to open source all of the technology, and you know, like it just it doesn't. You know, but then it includes some subtle flaw in the blueprints. Well, so as soon as someone figures out what the flaw, they fix it and they re-release it to the public, right? So uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It's possible though, for sure. Well, Joel, uh, Joel pushed us back toward discussing centralization and decentralization, and and we talked about uh, the programming team being one one possible vulnerability. Uh, one that people discuss uh, perhaps the most is mining. Um, are either of you interested in speaking on, you know, d would you critique Bitcoin from that level or talk about what its vulnerabilities might be from the perspective of how it is that, that the currency gets sort of validated, controlled by the miners? Can I give the the contrary and then perhaps uh, Christoph can defend it? Sure. So again, this is not really my domain, but I I, I, I you know, swatted up on it a bit so that I didn't sound too ignorant uh, coming on the show. And what I discovered was um, that mining is concentrated in, I think, as, as few as three pools. Um, and just a little word on, on, on the mining. So uh the the idea is that uh lots of different people have the opportunity to validate transactions to go onto the blockchain and to do so they have to solve uh, a very uh difficult numerical problem which consumes a vast amount of energy and that's their disincentive to uh, uh act fraudulently is because they don't know uh, when they're going to win the race to solve the problem and therefore whether or not they can commit the fraudulent transaction or not. So the idea is that because if you have thousands and thousands of nodes competing uh, to mine that block and win that uh, Bitcoin, uh, you have uh, a system uh, that is uh, protected from people acting uh, illegitimately. But if people collude, and this is what we need to guard against, and you can control 51% of the network, then you can change anything you like. So what we see is in order to be more efficient so they can get a better return on their energy consumption, you see miners pooling their resources so that overall they win more and get a more uh, constant return uh, on uh, the capital they've deployed to do the mining. Now, the problem is, if you've got only a handful of mining pools, then any one mining pool potentially can control 51% of the network and therefore change everybody's balance. That's how I understand it. Christoph, uh, have I got it wrong? You're on the right track. There's a few uh, subtleties there to understand. So just to expand the pool idea, you know, the idea is rather than solo my every 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 Bitcoin blocker, the miner who solves this puzzle first announces it to the network gets a reward from it, right? But there's so much competition there that 
if you're at, at mining from home or you're some small business that's involved in, in Bitcoin mining, the chances that you're going to win this are pretty astronomically low. Every once in a while, you'll hear in the news, like some excited person is, a, you know, mining from home and, and, and they'll, they'll get one of these blocks, but it's ex extremely rare. So it makes more sense to pool where you you pull your resources for, for mining and then you split the rewards, right? That's the, that's the key thing is uh, uh, sort of proportional to how much you're contributing to the pool. That's what, if your pool does get the block, meaning one of the miners involved in the, in the pool finds the block, then you're going to kind of split it uh, proportionally with the, the participants. Um, the number of pools matters somewhat, but now we're starting to get into a kind of a more complex analysis of threat model, right? Um, and um, I don't want to get too sort of technical for the audience, but, you know, it's important to kind of think about what, what that means in practical terms. So let's say that um, a government agency or a group of people they, they show up at the headquarters of these different pools where their servers are located or they hack them remotely or something like that. And they seize control over mining pools. And let's say they do enough of it to get 51% of the network. That's the kind of magical number where if you have this majority control over blocks, you can start messing with things. It's not that you can change people's balances. What it means is that you have an advantage Starting at the time where you seize control over this stuff, you can change the ordering of blocks and, and kind of rewrite history from that point in time on. Um, now, a few things would happen under this circumstance. Keep in mind that pools are constituted by mining power from typically all over the world. There might be some mining pools where it's just a single company pooling its resources and they are all in China, for example, or you know some geographic region like that. But a lot of mining pools, people are contributing for all of the world. So if someone seizes control over a mining pool and starts doing bad stuff that's going to uh, disrupt the network, well, you know, for starters, it's immediately going to tank the Bitcoin price, at least temporarily, because right? the whole point of Bitcoin is that it's supposed to not allow this meddling in, in transactions and so forth. So the, the people who are actually own those mining machines are going to det detect this fairly quickly, right? Maybe they're asleep and they don't notice until they wake up or something like that, but they're going to detect this fairly quickly and they're going to move their mining power off of that pool and shift it over to another pool. And so merely seizing control over pools gives you a fairly temporary uh, impact on, on Bitcoin mining overall. Um, but, you know, there, there is, there are centralization concerns for a long time there. There was a lot of mining hash power that was in, in China, right? Maybe over 51% at some point. Um, and, uh, Certainly, uh, attackers could seize control, again, either physically, locally, or, or remotely. They could seize control over mining equipment. In general, though, miners have a, an economic incentive to react to the situation and make adjustments, right? It's not a, it's not a set static situation. In the worst case scenario that we could imagine, um, uh, and Bitcoin uh, developers have talked about this and speculated this for, for a long time, worst case scenario is somehow some entity just gets control over 51% and they just, they've got a lock on it. You can't, you can't get them off. They've got the, they've got the hardware, you know, you, you can't, you can't keep them off. So then the Bitcoin network would have to fork to a new mining uh, algorithm or a protocol or something like that. Okay, yeah, it would be yeah. a big, ugly change, but that's what they would be forced to do is to continue the network. Now making the hardware, which this attacker has seized control over useless to this new version of the chain. Okay, I want, I want to kind of try to summarize and simplify this. Um, yeah. Basically, 
the idea is that if somebody has all this equipment that they've invested in, they've invested their career in doing something, and then suddenly in the middle of their career, um, they realize that they have a little bit more than half of the power and they go, I'm just going to, I'm just going to shake everything and, and, you know, take control and, and, you know, burn some of the record books in the office and, and that's not going to hurt anything. Right. Uh, whereas it's probably actually going to burn down their own career. Now, that doesn't mean this can't be done, but it would be done by uh, probably, uh, in a sense, an outside actor. Uh, like, for instance, this would be um, something you would expect uh, a, you know, a competitive force, not a cooperative force to do. You know, the game theory suggests that, um, you know, if you have people invested in it, yes. um, that, that the people invested in doing it for the sake of the investment aren't going to yes. do it. Yeah. Now, this this is an oversimplification. We're really talking about this 51% attack thing, which was clear from the very first white paper that was published. There are other kind of game theory technicalities here that get more involved. There's a, a, this idea of selfish mining where miners might be sometimes doing normal mining, but they might switch into a different mode in certain situations. And so there are some uh, uh, criticisms of how Bitcoin mining works. And people have created other cryptocurrencies that, that don't have those particular weaknesses. You know, the, the topic du jour is a, a proof of stake mining, uh, where instead of burning energy to, to, to secure the network, uh, it's just whoever has the most coins gets a proportional vote in the next blocks, right? And that actually um, is incredibly complex because it has all its, of its own weaknesses and um, a number of you know, proof of stake coins have been created uh, and, and, and failed to address those weaknesses. Some of them maybe have, have turned the corner on that now. We'll, we'll have to wait and see, but it's, it's not so easy to, to improve on proof of work. Um, and uh, I think it'll be a long time before we can say decisively whether this is the, the superior model or not, or maybe it's not the best model, but it's good enough to the point where uh, the network effect that Bitcoin already has cannot be overcome simply by innovating on the, the proof of uh, the proof of work mechanism. Okay, this, so... this is where I this is sorry, Matthew. This is where I struggle uh, with proof of work versus proof of stake, because when you've got these pools, you say the economic disincentive for the pools to misbehave uh, means that they don't misbehave, but that's proof of stake. So you're saying that they've got enough stake in the network that even though they could, they wouldn't misbehave because it's going to hurt them the most. Isn't that the essence of proof of stake? Um, it may be the essence of being a stakeholder, which may be different than proof of stake um, as the the core uh, principle of the algorithm. Yeah, no, the algorithms are different. I'm talking about the the, the human now, or the entity that's that's doing the uh, the validation. The incentive in proof of stake explicitly is those who have the most stake are given the the, the task of validating because. We trust them to validate properly because if they don't, they're the ones that are going to suffer the most when the uh, ledger currency goes down in value as a result of malicious activity. We're saying proof of work doesn't have that problem at the protocol level because in theory, you've got lots and lots of nodes who aren't colluding. But now we're talking about nodes colluding 
And the only reason that the collusion doesn't re result in a network attack is because of the economic disincentive to do so, which is the core of the proof of stake. So you've kind of reduced, in my mind, you've reduced them both to the same economic disincentive, but one is really, really expensive, proof of work, and the other one's really, really cheap, proof of stake. So I'd go for proof of stake, since proof of work has it, it collapsed into proof of stake anyway. Yeah, it makes sense uh, that, you know, that, that proof of stake, the, the validators have a more uh, direct relationship and, you know, to, to, uh, negative changes in, in the price and they have more at stake, you know, it's, it's in the name, right? As it turns out from a computer science perspective, there's a number of challenges there. Uh, there's this, uh, this notion of uh, nothing at stake attack. And I'm not going to go into the details. I can't give a, a layman's explanation quickly of, of that, but there's a number of fundamental challenges with making um, a, a proof of stake protocol that doesn't have problems with, with other areas of, of how that works. So people are still working that out and it may, it may prove that, proof of stake or some other mechanism is the superior in the long run, but we just don't have clarity on that yet. Okay. And for a little levity, uh, I, I've got what I think is the best Bitcoin joke of all time for, uh, for those who are new to the field. But uh, this is, <laughs> this is the idea of, of uh, the use of energy uh, being processed by computers as being the sort of absurdity. And, and I have to say that uh, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I misunderstood what it was because I heard this idea of solving mathematical problems and I didn't imagine a lottery. What I imagined actually, you know, because this is, uh, we're talking about cryptographic uh, currency is, is I actually imagined that people's computers were doing something like um, working out interesting relationships between prime numbers because that's what uh, a certain amount of cryptography is, is based on. And now this is, this is sort of an interesting form of centralization that could be a point of attack that may be worth talking about. There are people who worry that quantum computing is going to come in and just shatter the whole system. That uh, that whoever gets to quantum first can basically break everybody's code and and own anything that 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 might be called digital money or you know in that case they could also get into all the the banks. The truth is most of the the world's dollars are are digital too, right? Um, but uh, you know what is it that the that the industry can do or people can do to you know push that threat away? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of speculation uh, about quantum cryptography, and, and including you know speculation that maybe certain adversaries have already broken uh, you know um, that kind of that kind of crypto. Uh, it's it's unavoidable that uh, some of the cryptography included in Bitcoin's code uh, is going to be prone to cryptographic uh, you know uh, attacks based on quantum computing. Uh, the general feeling is that the practicality of that is so far in the future that. Bitcoin has a lot of time to to react to that. So they're going to have to identify and, and there's already a, a good amount of work that's already happened in developing post quantum cryptographic algorithms. And Bitcoin's going to have to make a segue from its current series of algorithms to that new one. But people are thinking more along the lines of decades, uh, more so than over the next few years. Um, so I think it's probably something that's you know, we have ample time to adjust to. With that level of ex existential threat looming, that might be enough to actually get break past that that conservatism about changing Bitcoin. 
Yeah, it might even be interesting for uh, Bitcoiners or, or cryptocurrency holders in general to, to have something like a prize fund for the next leap in trapdoor functions. And for anybody in the audience who's wondering, uh, trapdoor function is the the actual mathematical function that, that underlies cryptography. And a very simple example is multiplication versus the reverse process of multiplication of integers. It's much easier for me to say that 37 times 43 is... 1,591 than for me to start with 1,591 and backtrack to those integers, right? It takes a whole lot longer in reverse. And so uh, over the years, um, uh, mathematicians and computer scientists have gradually found slightly better versions of this, but it's really been in, in like, you know, just a couple of leaps, right? Um, we used, uh, you know, uh, you know, modular arithmetic, linear congruences and prime numbers to uh, come up with like, you know, uh, the cryptography that came out of Enigma in World War II. Um, and, and that lasted for decades. And now we have this uh, elliptic curve um, where you've got uh, rational solutions on this particular type of polynomial. Uh, and it's and there's a type of function that was noted that would bounce around between uh, rational points. But it, it's easier to go one way in the computation than the other, so much so that it was a massive improvement over the last um, era of cryptography. But um, it seems like with with quantum computing, and, and who knows how far that is on the horizon, I don't trust hardly anything I read in a magazine or on the news, uh, because as far as I'm concerned, it was five years away, 35 years ago when I first saw it, right? Um, on the other hand, uh, there, there is a need to be thinking about the problem. And, and uh, I would like to encourage like some Bitcoin or somewhere out there to, to create a prize fund or something. Um, um, I'm, I'm going to move to another topic um, that uh, that I know is a strength of Joel's, which is, uh, you know, Joel, you, you see um, the possibility of now applying blockchain to build networks that are sort of one economic solution at a time. For instance, you could have something like a um, hospital payment system or an educational payment system, and and the technology that you focus on focus on would be would allow to create for that. Um, I, I have a worry, and I'm going to throw this problem at you. I have a worry that if there is not like an underlying um, like a foundational value behind uh, such a token that it will be difficult for the network to operate because whoever is accruing the most at the top will need something like an outlet for their excess earnings. They need to be able to go buy a house or a car or fund their kids, you know, college tuition or something like that. Right. Um, so, um, what, what do you think the near term experience for, for that is and how do we get past, you know, not having Bitcoin ascend to reserve currency yet, if it does. Yeah, um, and I think this is key to adoption is to get closer to what people are experiencing right now. So to try and take uh, your analogy, uh, just extend it a little bit. We already effectively have this. When you go shop at a merchant, uh, the merchant tries to uh, capture uh, you as a customer uh, and they can do that um, by allowing you to have an account, for example, uh, to reward you with loyalty points. Uh, so these are all uh, tokens of value that you can only um, spend at that merchant. I think one of the opportunities with blockchain, the, the near-term opportunity, is to allow all of these uh, esoteric tokens of value to be traded uh, on some kind of exchange if necessary. We've got lots of exchange uh, protocols out there already. 
And so it takes what uh, already exists to a certain extent, what people are already familiar with, what appeals to merchants, but allows users to derive greater value from those tokens because they can trade them with other people. And in so doing, that same liquidity allows those token providers to exit their own token into some other token of value or store of value so that they can go off and buy their house or put petrol in their car. Okay, so essentially in the shorter term, um, the idea is that the networks still have friction with the entire rest of the economic system. Inevitably, yeah. I mean, we're not going to have a big bang uh, of financial where the old system implodes and, and this new system, whether it's Bitcoin or something else, emerges in its stead. It's going to be a transition and it's going to be a war of attrition. Okay. Um why then have multiple tokens to operate with as opposed to one token that could be used uh, just as one network? Uh, it's possible, but I'm thinking again in the context of globalization, that one token is a, a single point of attack. Multiple tokens, if the government does push back and attack, I think are more likely to survive than one big token. Again, take the army analogy, right? The governments who control the money have the biggest armies. So if we were fighting a war, we wouldn't try and build an army and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, right? We would have little cells. In the same way, I think we have to have little cells. Well, we don't have to have them. I'm giving this some kind of uh, prior um, uh, strategy. I think the ones that survive may well be the ones that are more esoteric and independent because then there isn't a single point of attack. Okay. Um, I, I, I think I'm seeing a, a different feature of this now. So what you're saying is, is instead of there being one token for hospital networks and one token for educational networks, there would be multiple tokens that could be used potentially at either. No, no, there would be a hospital token and there would be some other token, but those tokens would trade against each other like currencies on an exchange. Okay, but then either one could be attacked, knocking down the system? Well, no, because if there's a million tokens in the system, if you take one out, there's still 999,000 left. You just plug one of them in as the hospital token? Well, yeah, I mean, if they take out the hospital token, on what basis? Like I said, it's, it already exists. It's a, a hospital loyalty point or a hospital account or, you know, you're allowed, uh, um, merchants are allowed to have their own um, closed loop currency systems. It's not illegal. All we're doing is using blockchain technology to make it easier for them to do that and for those tokens to be traded against other tokens to increase liquidity and therefore value. Okay, then won't people worry though? Hey, you know, I, I have um, you know three thousand dollars worth of some token. If something happens and the system is shaken up and somebody just swaps them out, that three thousand dollars may be worth like seventeen cents now, and the, and they're they're going to be sort of scared to hold it, which is what um, creates you know you have to have a, a certain amount of you know um, interplay between holding and spending to have an equilibrium of velocity of capital. Um, yeah, but we're talking about utility tokens here. 
right? So I'm not going to hold $3,000 of a token that I don't think I'm going to use, right? I'm going to swap them in and out according to my use. So I might have $300 at the optician, $500 in my hospital account, uh, $10,000 I wasn't saying that you weren't going to use. I mean, whichever number you pick, whether it's $300, $500, $3,000, um, the point is that, it, that it's, um, you know, uh, substance of, you know, my earnings, the the work that I've, I've stored there in value. But um, if it's a rotation of tokens upon attack, um, that seems to leave, um, uh, you know, a, a question in the in the mind of people who would uh, purchase tokens. I'm going to have to think this one through and think, you know, wonder whether there is any sort of game theoretic balance or. Um, but I'm saying about the, the legitimacy, legitimacy of attack as well. Right. If I've got five hundred dollar hospital tokens, under what presumption can anybody come in and attack those hospital tokens? The hospital is saying, well, we provide a service. We take payment for that service. We've created our own currency, which we're allowed to do. It's called the hospital token. And, you know, you buy that token from us. A better example would be uh, cloud services or mobile phone services, prepaid uh, mobile phone services. Effectively, when you prepay, you've bought a certain amount of proprietary token that gives you access to the service that that provider provides. Right? And that's what I'm saying, these tokens can exist. And in actual fact, we already have the facility for people to trade mobile phone tokens. In the third world, you can prepay your phone and use that prepayment to pay other people. And then they can use that to, to provide uh, services on their phone. That's, that's all I'm saying is we use the technology to make that existing process more efficient. And that is more... Uh, less likely to be attacked by governments who perceive a threat from uh, digital currencies to their fiat currencies, fiat money system. So if that can be done in a way that um, that is relatively workable and stable, and this has happened in Africa for, for people who don't know this example, um, uh, people have used uh, cell phone minutes in particular as a currency. And, uh, you, you know, you could label that a token if you want, or you could codify it slightly differently to make it into uh, a token. Um, that's one possibility. Um, it, so why is this superior to doing something like finding a way to just use Bitcoin or to wrap Bitcoin as uh, some of the uh, like the, the Ethereum uh, uh, mines have done to create some of their tokens? If you if you you know, use Bitcoin as your underlying, um, you know, monetary technology. Uh, is, is it just that you have 1.1 currency to attack and you worry about that one? I, I, I wonder if, if having one currency to attack means that you marshal all, all your defensive forces to one place. And there's a question as to does that uh, benefit the attacker or the defender? And that's, that's one worth thinking about. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think we as the people, if you like, could ever marshal enough defenses to combat the government in one place. Uh, Christoph, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a lot of details to work out in these kind of schemes. Um, I would call, I would kind of categorize this type of approach to splitting off tokens as kind of like app coins, coins that, uh, pay for some specific, they're, they're designated for some specific service. And uh, um, th there's an article that I recommended here. Um, 
uses somewhat inflammatory language here from the Nakamoto Institute, but they have some pretty interesting economic arguments about why they don't see a future for, for app coins. So I would sort of refer people to, to that analysis. Okay, guys. Well, we could truly go on forever. And what excites me is that how much of this is still unsettled. Um, I know that can cause stress for some people trying to get into it, but I want to encourage people to, in fact, use this opportunity, use what we've talked about here and the disagreements as well as the agreements, use it as a chance to now go and um, pursue further knowledge on the topic of, of, of blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies and stuff that I know I'm going to need to dive a lot more into. Um, I want to end. Oh, if, if I could, I, and I want to make a plea to, to uh, the portion of the audience that is relatively new to cryptocurrency, because I know a lot of people came to uh, rounding the earth when I was uh, uh, doing statistics on uh, hydroxychloroquine or other aspects of the pandemic. And, um, and I know that there are people who are afraid of this leap to digital currencies. I think that, um, that to an extent, it's, it's inevitable as you know, technology advances and we have uh, you know, electricity available and programming skill available to make things more easily done on that level. Um, it, it's difficult to argue against uh, you know, continuation down that path for anything that's going to uh, benefit um, you know, almost everyone, uh, I would think. People worry, though. People worry because they worry about centralized forces. And what I want to point out is that within this landscape, there's not just one thing like digital currencies are coming. Um, there are all kinds of different ways to do this. Some of them have um, you know, more strengths and weaknesses. Some of them are more centralized in certain ways, more decentralized in certain ways. Um, we can continue to look for ways to, to decentralize and spread out um, uh, you know, have stronger defenses, uh, you know, um, more easily recognizable areas of attack. And, and that's the goal, right? Is it's, it's not whether or not we do it, but it's how we do it. We need to find ways to do it right. And, uh, you know, I, I strongly believe that, um, you know, central bank digital currencies are really the same thing that we have in the status quo plus new technology applied to surveillance. Right. And that's one option that's out there. Another option out there, Bitcoin and and other uh, cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, which is more programmable, but may you know sacrifice security. There's a discussion between proof of work and proof of stake. These are the debates going on, um, but these are not the same thing as, as central bank digital currencies. And those people who are worried that it's going to be used to track and control them, um, you know, understand that uh, it's worth educating yourself in this environment because it may be the most significant new technology of our lifetimes. Good thoughts. Gentlemen, Christoph, Joel, uh, I wanted to ask you just as a closing thought, what are what is the first thing someone can do in their life to begin the process of adoption for this this new era of technology? Something that that is available to them now, whether it's further reading or whether it's, um, you know, a, a service that uses blockchain technology. Um how, what would you want people listening to to try or to dip their toes into as a next step? Uh, Christoph, let's let's go with you first. Sure. Uh, it's extremely easy for, for people in a lot of countries these days to get started in crypto. Just sign up for a, an exchange account. Probably if you if you like crypto, if it's something that stays in your life, several of them, because one of them might get into a bad state or something like that, that you, you know, you have to get some new some new documents submitted or whatever it is. Uh, 
pick up some some crypto and and, and try it out and and uh, play around with it. Try out the technology for yourself and see what you think. Um, I would do want to steer people away from um, some of the institutions that have been blown up in the in the crypto space lately, where the so-called CFI uh, kind of businesses, centralized finance. These are businesses that have been posing as calling using terms like DeFi in their names, but really they're just banks that are, you know, taking accepting crypto from people and then, you know, um, uh, doing fractional lending with it. And uh, you know, I think it was sort of inevitable that that stuff was going to blow up as it did over the last few months. And so, um, you know, let's let's not repeat the same mistakes, reproduce the same problems that we have with the existing financial system in this new one. Uh, let's just skip over that. That's my attitude. Rock on. How about you, Joel? Maybe not necessarily something in the crypto space, but the blockchain uh, era that you're marching us into. No, I would agree uh, with Christoph. Um, I am an advocate of learning on the job. Um, yes, of course, there is uh, a place for um, functional learning. Uh, and, and Matthew will testify to that. But I would say in this space, um, just jump right in uh, and get involved and learn that way. I would disagree with Christoph, uh, and this will seem funny again, coming from where I came from and some of the things I said about incremental changes to adoption. I would actually say rather than opening an account with an exchange, which is a more conventional way of doing things, You'll also have to go through KYC, which is proving your identity, giving them your name and your address and all the rest of it. That's not really embracing the ethos of this. I would say download a wallet, and there are plenty. Uh, I'm going to say some. I'm obviously not affiliated with them, uh, so I'm not plugging them, but just the ones that I found easy to work with that have been uh, quite functional. Uh, Metamask is a very popular first wallet. Uh, I like one inch. Um, because uh, it allows you to trade, uh, doesn't lump on some, uh, some extra fees. Um, but there are lots and lots of other wallets. Uh, and then um, get somebody to send you some crypto is the best way, because then you're not risking anything. I sent crypto to lots of people just to, to get them started so that they could get familiar uh, with wallets, with uh, public-private key, because when you download the wallet and set it up, you have to uh, store your private key, and therefore you understand this relationship between private and public key, share your public key or your address uh, with somebody in order to receive the crypto, uh, and then eventually go on to buying uh, some other crypto. You can buy crypto through, directly through these wallets uh, with a debit card or a bank transfer, uh, over a certain limit, yes, you have to jump through the KYC hoops again. But if people are just doing this to, to test it, uh, I think the thresholds are typically like 1000 or $1,500 before they start asking you who you are, uh, which is plenty enough to, uh, to start dabbling. And then, yes, look behind the projects. Don't just buy crypto for the sake of having the crypto. I prefer these utility tokens, which typically will have uh, a project behind it, not always a technology project, but we're seeing a lot of projects funded with crypto now uh, that then go out uh, and do something in the real world, but using still using the blockchain technology to do that thing better than uh, they could do without it. That would be my advice. Um, and feel free to contact me. Uh, I've got a Telegram group uh, as well, um, which is 
multi-purpose, but I do a lot of um, blockchain stroke crypto uh, education and assistance on that as well. Well, I'll use this opportunity to plug you guys a little bit. So, um, uh, Joel, you've got your dead man talking Substack, um, and I just pulled up this uh, blockchain debate uh, post you made about this very conversation. Thank you for doing that. So folks can go to, uh, let's see, metatron.substack.com if they want to find you there. And maybe if you want to just in the comments uh, put a link to the Telegram group or anything else you might want to share, that'd be fantastic. Um, and, uh, then as I jump between all sorts of windows, then we have, uh, uh, Christoph can be found at christophatlas.com. Um, and, uh, this is a, a very colorful website that I look forward to going through myself. And, um, your Twitter is at Christoph Atlas. Did I miss anything? No, that's perfect. Wonderful. Well, um, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you both so much for coming on. And um, I know I learned a lot. And of course, uh, Matthew is is uh, a great resource as well. This is the Rounding the Earth podcast after all. So um, make sure to go to roundingtheearth.substack.com. Subscribe, become a paid subscriber if you want to help us continue to do not only the Substack, but video content just like this. And just in general, growing and engaging the kind of community that we want to be building. Um, becoming a paid subscriber is a fantastic way to do that. Um, you can also go subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, we're thus far, we have not violated any of the many rules, which I think is an accomplishment. And uh, I would say- They, we they also, just haven't found out. Yeah. Well, you know, someone pointed out in one of the very first videos that we did on the, on the pandemic, um, even before it went live, there was already one of those little content warnings, you know, find reputable information on COVID-19 here. So- I think we're being watched, but it's good to have fans at YouTube. Same thing. We do like Rumble a lot. It's a company that uh, that that very explicitly does not uh, censor, at least thus far. Um, and Rumble's great because you can uh, give these things called Rumble rants, which are basically paid comments. Um, and it's another great way to support the show. And then uh, last but not least, we also stream live. Look at that beautiful face on Odyssey. Um and actually, really, last but not least, I just want to plug our Campfire Wiki, um, which is campfire.wiki. And that's where you can go to find all the research that we've been doing as uh, through Operation Uplift, which is our community group, including on Bitcoin. Um, and we do have about 150 pages of educational Bitcoin content there. Yes. Um, any final thoughts, Christoph, Joel, before I kick you guys out? <laughs> Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks, thanks so for having Chris. me too. Thanks Thank for not you. beating me up. <laughs> hey, excellent conversations like this sometimes need to have a little butting of heads. I think that's something we need to foster in addition to just in agreeing with each other all the time. That would be boring. All right. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Um, Matthew, another great show, needless to say. Yeah, I hope this is educational to a lot of people. Um, you know, Christoph and Joel are, uh, you know, they're, they're both very smart guys, but they're also great guys, um, you know, easy to have on and talk to. And, uh, um, you know, I hope this is a tremendous push forward for people to understand that um, 
This is not uh, necessarily some scary thing that's being imposed on them, but also to see the value in possibly going in and checking out the ecosystem, you know, putting one wallet on their phone, uh, you know, uh, heck, uh, you know, uh, testing out $5 worth of cryptocurrency. Um, I, I've sent, uh, I, I think probably uh, similar to, to those guys, I've sent, um, I think a few thousand dollars in cryptocurrency to friends, just getting them to, to test things out. And if you find your local cryptocurrency expert and poke them, they'll, they'll probably send you uh, a few dollars worth of something and you can, you can just start trying it out, see what's out there. Um, I, I know of restaurants in my city where, where now I can go pay Bitcoin and buy a meal. So, you know, obviously the adoption is growing and, um, and the world is going to look more like the cryptocurrency world as we move forward, I think. Rock on. Well, and it's a bright one ahead, I hope. Uh, Matthew, I'm going to kick you out as well, and I'm just going to say one final word. Thank you so much for tuning in to this is our, our third Rounding the Earth Roundtable. I know I've learned something new every single time, uh, but more than anything, I've just really enjoyed uh, talking with, with these three gentlemen, and um, I learned a lot myself. So I've been Liam Sturgis, your host. And uh, like I said, go like, comment, subscribe, and all of those things that I think helps the algorithm if I say. Um, and uh, we'll be back on Friday for our Rounding the News, News Roundup. And then one week from today, we will be back, I believe, to discuss the topic of Russia. But more info on that to come. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you later. Mm -hmm.